Good morning. It's great to be in London, and it's uh, just a, a delight to be here in Central Hall, right here in the heart of downtown London. Thank you for coming out. This is, this is a great encouragement to us at CCEF, and I hope that uh, today will will benefit you, that uh, those of you who don't know much about CCF would be uh, more introduced to us, get a better sense of who we are. Those of you who know us, uh, along with those who don't know us well, all of us would be uh, encouraged and edified as we think about the central role that our union with Christ, our relationship with Christ, and how the scriptures and our fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ are intended or designed by God to do something utterly amazing, and that is to change you and me into the very likeness of Christ himself. That, that, is, that is the glorious hope and vision that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be conformed one day ultimately into the very likeness of Christ. So let me begin very practically. I'm a pastor by heart. Um, I, uh, I live in the trenches of daily ministry, whether it's preaching or counseling or pastoral visitation. Let me ask you this question, and just think about this. How many of you have ever found yourself in, in a situation like this? You're in your car. I don't, can you talk on your cell phones in your car? And you, you can't. We're, we're starting to decide that you can't in the U.S. But, so let me, let me just say, you're at home, all right? <laughs> And uh, you're a bit agitated, and you're having this kind of irritable, agitated, uh, slightly angry conversation with your spouse, or maybe your child, or a roommate, and uh, all of a sudden the phone rings, and you go from agitated and angry, you pick up the phone, and all of a sudden you become very kind and spiritual. Oh, good day, yes, hello. And all of a sudden, you become very, very calm and patient and kind and godly and gentle, all within a split second. Now, what's going on there? What is going on there is what is going on in every single moment of your life as you live life and as you respond to the circumstances of life. You are changing. You're either changing for good or ill. And, and I would argue that that those changes are driven out of motivations in the inner person. And so the example I just gave you is not necessarily a good example. I'm irritated and angry because the person that's in my life right now is not getting me what I want, or they're not serving me the way I want them to serve me. So my comfort and my agenda is what I'm, what I'm living for, what's driving me, what I treasure and adore in the moment. And then you call, or someone calls, or my pastor calls, and I pick up the phone, and all of a sudden, my behavior changes. And probably what's driving me at that moment is not the glory of Christ. What's driving me at that moment when I pick up the phone is, uh-oh, I want other people to think highly of me. I want my pastor to think I'm a spiritual, godly person. But that still is very self-centered, isn't it? So... That's not a good example of change, but it is a picture of what's happening every single moment of every single day in our lives. And, and what David and I want to do uh, today is we want to cast a vision for what it looks like for Christ and His glory and His grace and His work in our lives through the Spirit, via the Word, within the context of fellowship with one another, how that 
of all things should motivate us and drive our behavior throughout any given day, any given moment of any given day. And so I'm going to begin this morning by giving you a very basic intro to a biblical model of the person of life in this world and change as God works it in our lives by His grace. A few uh, caveats, a few disclaimers as I begin this morning, particularly for those of you who don't know CCF, let me, let me say this. One of the things that would encourage us greatly today is if you left today and you, you said to me and David on the way out, I didn't learn anything new. Now, that's an odd thing for someone like me who travels from Philadelphia to London to say, right? Why didn't we just stay in Philadelphia? Well, I don't want you to leave with this sense that CCF somehow has arrived on the scene in the late 60s and voila, discovered something that the church has never known about before and here we are to dispense it. We haven't come up with anything new. We are, we are bringing the old truths of Scripture to bear in many ways on what we might call modern problems and the struggles and sins and sufferings of daily living, and we hope we're doing that in fresh ways. But we're not bringing you anything new. We're bringing you the old truths of Scripture, the, the truths that have sustained the church throughout the ages, and David will, will talk about that in the second hour. The second thing that I want to say is that David and I aren't here as the great Americans bringing to you the Brits the things that you don't already have. And, and we're not coming as if we have arrived and, and let us then show you how to arrive. We are, we are in process as an organization as we continue to grow in grace ourselves, as we continue to understand the dynamics of change, as we appreciate the depths of human suffering, as we uh, witness and struggle within our own hearts and souls the, the, the temptations and sins that are common to all of us. And so we come really as fellow, humble brothers in Christ to hopefully learn from you and hopefully to teach and, and encourage you. So with those two caveats, I think it's important to, uh, to hear, you, hear, hear you hear me say those things. Well, who needs to change anyway? This is a quote from uh, a book, How People Change. Here's some words that I penned. Nothing is more obvious than the need for change. Nothing is more obvious than the need for change. Every single human being, whether a believer or not, knows that there are places in their lives that need to change. But this is the second part. Nothing is less obvious many times than how that change happens. So we all know that we need to change, we need to grow, we need to live differently. But the struggle is we don't know how change happens in our lives. Let me give you a definition of change. Here's a definition of change I think will we'll stick with you. It's, it's a little complicated, but bear with me. First of all, a true biblical understanding of change that is Christ-centered is not less than behavioral, it's more. A true understanding of change is not less than behavioral, it's more. Is God concerned about our behavior? Absolutely. But true biblical change is not less than that, it's more. 
Here's the second piece of this definition. True biblical Christ-centered change is not less than cognitive, it's more. See, sometimes we think, well, if we're going to change, I have to replace the falsehoods and the lies with the truth of Scripture. Is that true? Yes. But true biblical change is not less than that, it's more. A true biblical Christ-centered understanding of change, watch this, is covenantal. Everybody writes the word covenantal down. When you hear the word covenant, what do you think? A lot of people say promise, contract, some kind of legal arrangement. And, and all of that is right. But why, why contract, why legal arrangement, why promise? Why does God enter into covenant with us? Because he wants to have a relationship with us. So if, if change is going to happen, it's got to be more than us just kind of tweaking our behavior or rearranging our thought patterns and processes. It's got to involve us in the moment crying out to God and relating to him as we enter into covenant with him, crying out to him for grace and mercy and strength. Lord, help me. I need to grow. I need to change in this moment. So change is not less than behavioral, it's more. Change is not less than cognitive, it's more. Change is covenantal. It happens primarily in relationship vertically with Father, Son, and Spirit in light of this covenant of grace that we've entered into. And then it happens horizontally as we live in fellowship with one another and as we encourage and strengthen one another within the context of the body of Christ. Here, here are the, the three things I'm going to do. Those are my opening statements. First of all, I want to introduce you to the big picture of change. Secondly, I want to take you to a passage in Scripture, James 4, as a case study to think through this big picture. And then thirdly, I want to finish it with a personal illustration out of my own life. And as I struggle in my marriage and my relationship with my four children. See, this is, this is not theoretical for me. Uh, the, the Christian life, it either does or doesn't get lived out within the context of those who are closest to me, my wife and my four children. And so I want to finish with an illustration uh, as we think about this first hour. First point, here's the big picture. Any model or theory of change has various components to it. And I would argue that Scripture probably gives us the most comprehensive big picture that there is. Um, you can, you can uh, analyze and assess other models of change on the basis of the Scriptures and their model that they give us. But every model of change has... Uh, a focus on the situation. What is going on in the moment that you are responding to life? What's going on? Blessings and difficulty. Anything external to the inner person. A person's physiological strengths and weaknesses. A person's mental strengths and frailties. That's a part of the situation. So my body is a part of the circumstances that I'm in, life experiences that have happened to me throughout 
the course of my life, my relational history, my family of origin, significant relational events throughout my life, both good and bad. That makes up the situation. That's the stage upon which responses to the situation play out. And then you can even go broader and talk about cultural and political context in which we find ourselves in. When we see uh, the situation in James chapter 4 that we'll look at in a moment, there was a unique, unique political context that was a part of the situation. But that's, that's the situation. That's a person's circumstances. The second aspect of a robust model of change includes one's response to that situation, particularly as, as we think about it from a biblical point of view, an ungodly response. How do we typically respond naturally to those circumstances, to that situation? What did you do within the context of that situation? But there's always more than a what did you do, there's a why did you do it? There's a motivational dynamic. Why did you do what you did? A third component that is a part of any model of change is how does change happen? How does, how does one stop doing this and start doing this? And every theory, every, every model proposes some kind of change dynamic. And for us in Scripture, it is primarily the grace of Christ and daily faith and repentance. Just that ongoing walk of grace and growth and change. And then the fourth component to any model of change is a new response to the same circumstances. What did you do? Why did you do what you did? What did you do differently? And what motivated you? As Christ in his grace changed you, what motivated you to respond in, in a very unnatural way? In a way that only could be described as something that was spirit wrought, something that the Holy Spirit enabled you to do. Now, you have all these components, and every system of change focuses on a particular aspect of those four. And here's what the Bible does. The Bible takes all of these seriously. But it does tend to hone in on a particular facet of the change process. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Verses 43 through 45, these are critical passages as we think about who we are fundamentally as human beings. Why do we do the things we do? What makes us tick? Why do you get irritated and angry and in, in a flash you can pick up the phone and become kind and gentle? Why is that? Well, listen, Jesus gives us a really wonderful, simple picture and, of course, you can, you can understand Jesus uses agricultural analogies because that's the world that he, he lived in. And, and look what he says in Luke chapter 6, verse 43. He begins by talking about a tree. No good tree 
bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. And then he shifts. He says, okay, I'm going I'm to move from talking about trees and fruit to people. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. And here's the, the clincher. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's the why. The what is the mouth speaking, or that's your behavior. The why is the overflow of the heart. What is going on internally? And the word heart in Scripture is just simply another way of talking about the inner person, the affections, the soul, the spirit, the inner person, the heart. The word heart is used more times in Scripture to capture the essence of who we are. We, are. we are worshipers. We are people who adore and treasure and fear and give our allegiance to and revolve our life around certain things. And whatever that is, is going to express itself in our lives in certain behavior. Now, let's look at James chapter 4. Turn to James 4. This is our case study. How many of you have ever experienced interpersonal conflict with another person? <laughs> right? Okay. I think I've got my audience right now. I've got you. Um, I, I want to start with something as basic as interpersonal conflict with another person in James 4, because that's what's going on. If our, if our understanding of a Christian view of change and the change dynamic can't apply to something as fundamental as interpersonal conflict, then we've got a problem. Now, I'm going to argue, and David will share later, that we think this same model is wonderfully relevant to even what you might consider more complex struggles with temptation and sin, as well as experiences of suffering. And by the way, sin and suffering are both things that you want to keep on your radar, right? We struggle with temptations and sins, but we also experience suffering. Both of those are very important. The Heidelberg Catechism calls them sins and misery. Both of those are a part of the human condition. Look what uh, James says. Let's just Take a look at James 4 and walk through it in light of this big picture. The situation, the response, the motivation, how Christ changes us by His grace, and a new response that grows out of a new transformed heart. James chapter 4. And look at verses 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? All right, so here, here's a fundamental Human experience, interpersonal conflict. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So here is, here is James talking about the situation and the response and the motivation. What is the situation? What's the situation in James 4? We don't have a lot of information, but a, a first part of the situation is that people are living with other people, right? That's why they're struggling with conflict, with interpersonal conflict. If you lived on an island all by yourself, you wouldn't fight with anybody, would you? Put you in the room with one other person, and all of a sudden the potential for interpersonal conflict goes up 100%, right? So part of the situation is that these people are living in community with one another. Another part of the situation, and you wouldn't know this unless you understood the, the history of the book of James, is that these people are experiencing suffering. They are being persecuted. This is James, the pastor of one of the key churches in Jerusalem. You read about it in the book of Acts, and probably what's going on about the time James is writing this letter to his congregants, the people that he's pastored, the people that he's loved, is that the Christians are being persecuted and they're being scattered and, and fleeing Jerusalem. Right there at the stoning of Stephen in the early part of the book of Acts. And, and James is writing his congregation because he cares for them. He loves them. And he understands that they're undergoing immense suffering. You see what happens already in a, a biblical model of change when you start to take the situation seriously? When you first start reading James chapter 4, what do you think? What's wrong with these people? Why can't they get along? And then all of a sudden you begin to say, well, what's their situation? Well, they're being persecuted, and that's all we know. But immediately, once you understand that they're being persecuted, what happens? There's a sense of greater compassion. A biblical model of change that doesn't take the situation seriously is going to be sub-biblical. It will be self-righteous. It will be moralistic. It will not be compassionate. And so understanding a person's situation allows you to enter in with compassion, appreciating what's happening not only presently but in their past and that's what James is doing here. He understands their situation. He, as a pastor, is motivated out of this concern for their suffering, and he's writing to them, encouraging them. So you have the situation here in James 4, other people in persecution. What's the response to the situation? If we're taking these big major categories. How are they responding to living in close proximity with one another within a difficult context of persecution. What are they doing? They're fighting. They're killing, coveting. And notice this. James says, you're not praying. When was the last time that you were in a conflict with another person and the first thing that came to your mind was, I want to pray? It's usually the last thing that I'm thinking about. I don't want to pray. I want to make sure this person understands that I'm right and they're wrong. Right? That's where you naturally go. And James says, this is where they're going. This is part of their response. They don't pray. And then he says, and when they do pray, 
They pray with selfish motives so that they may spend what they get on their own pleasure. So this is, this is the prayer that you might hear somebody pray in this situation. Lord, would you change them? You know, God, would you change my children? Would you purely sanctify them so that I don't have to experience the back and forth of living in human community with them as, as fellow sinners and strugglers? And, and God says, I love you too much. I won't answer those self-centered prayers. It's, it's, it's the most loving no that you will ever hear. But that is their response to the situation, their natural, ungodly, unbiblical response to the difficulties that they're facing within the context in which they live. And then look at the passage and where do you see the motivational pieces? James says, why do you quarrel and fight? And his answer isn't because you're living together or because you're experiencing persecution. He doesn't minimize that. But why does he say you fight? Look at the passage. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from what? Desires that battle within you. You see, there's an internal civil war in the soul that then breaks out in civil war between you and another person. But the reason you're having conflict between another person is because there's something going on inside. There are desires that battle within you. The word want there, you want something, but you don't get it. Or you can flip it and say you're getting something that you don't want. Right? You kill and covet because but you cannot have what you want. There's all that motivational language of why you're doing what you're doing. You see how the biblical writers are working out of a consistent understanding of who we are as human beings? We are worshipers. We are people who are entering into covenant with either the true and living God or we're entering into relationship or covenant with something else, something in creation. You do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. There's another word, motivation. This is what I want. And I'm not getting it, and so I'm lashing out in conflict with those around me. So already in James 4, we have the situation, we have the typical, normal, ungodly responses, and James puts a finger on the internal motivational piece. He doesn't do that by minimizing the circumstances. He doesn't say, oh, get over it. So you're experiencing persecution. Come on. No, he's, he's, he's compassionate. He's pastoral. He knows what they're experiencing, but he still says at the end of the day, what's happening is a motivational issue and problem. Now, the change dynamic, this is a little bit harder to see in James, but this idea of how God's grace rescues us from ourselves in verses 4 through 10, look what James does. This is interesting. It's not very flattering at face value, but then when you begin to reflect a little bit on what he's doing here, it's quite encouraging. What does James say to these believers? He says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? 
You see, it sounds a lot like the teaching of Jesus. You can't love God and money. You can't love God and something in creation. You can't love God and, and the things of this world. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, this isn't very flattering. And by the way, if you've read the book of James, James it doesn't intend to flatter, does he? He's a very direct, uh, clearly spoken, succinctly spoken individual. But when he calls these people adulterers, he's using this in the spiritual sense. He's actually saying something quite positive about them and about their, their true identity. In order to be an adulterer, what must you be first? Married. Very good. Yeah. And, and what does James say? He's saying, look, you are in covenant. There's the word. You are in relationship. You are in covenant relationship with the true and living God. And you are running after all kinds of other things besides him. And your desires and your wants are all driven by something other than the true and living God. It's what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. He talks about the unbeliever, but the dynamics are true of us as Christians. If you're a believer, we, we're tempted to replace worship of the creator with something in creation. And so something in creation, my own personal happiness, supplants true worship of the true and living God. And as a result, what do I become? I become a spiritual adulterer. I'm entering into covenant relationship with something other than the true and living God. And the word friendship there is similar. But look what, look what the passage does. It says, or do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us tends toward envy. Now, for you exegetes in the room, this is a tough passage, I admit. But let me tell you what I think is going on here. This is what I think is happening, and this is borne out by, I think, uh, better exegetes than myself. The word spirit there literally is the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit that he put within us is jealous. It's envious in a good sense. The Holy Spirit is zealous or jealous for our affection. And as we're straying, here's the picture. As we're straying and we're worshiping things other than the true and living God and we are entering into covenant with things other than him, we are becoming unfaithful. This Old Testament imagery of spiritual adultery, right? Idolatry. We're, we're moving towards something that is something other than the true and living God. We're living for that functionally in the moment. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit begins to to pursue us and say, I will not share your affection with another because you belong to me, the true and living God. And as the spirit begins to pursue us, even in the midst of our straying, what happens? The passage goes on to say, we begin to humble ourselves. And what does God do when we humble ourselves? He pours out grace on us. So this passage Contrary to the many times that I preached through the book of James as a pastor and missed this, this passage right here is just rich. It's just dripping in grace. The love of God, even as we're straying, is pursuing us in grace. Then when we humble ourselves because of his gracious work in pursuing us, what does he do? He pours out more grace on us. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful picture of the God of Scripture? 
And what happens as a result? We get rescued from ourselves. We get rescued from ourselves. And then look what happens next. God's grace, after it rescues us from ourselves, others get rescued from us. So when I get reoriented vertically in my desires and that which I adore and want and treasure and live for and orbit my life around, when that, when that reorientation happens and I'm vertically in the moment functionally living in relationship with God, talking to Him, relating to Him, I get reoriented vertically, I get rescued from myself, and other people get rescued from me. Where have you seen that before? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it, where, where, do we, where do we go wrong? Where, where do we go wrong when, it, when the second commandment's involved? It's never just the second commandment. It always involves the first and great commandment. Our love for others goes bad when our love for God goes awry. When we get disoriented vertically. So God rescues us from ourselves. And this is seen... Uh, and implied in this, in this final passage. Brothers, do not slander one another, right? Okay, if we've been rescued from ourselves, been reoriented vertically, then we're not going to slander other people. We're not going to treat them as enemies. We're going to what? Speak words of encouragement. We're not going to judge them, but we're going to build them up. And so James implies negatively the positive. This is, this is what will happen. This is a picture of practical faith and true repentance and spiritual warfare. Okay. Let me take James 4 and what I've been talking to you about and just illustrate it as I finish this first session. I want you to just walk with me through uh, a day in the life of Tim Lane. Married, four kids, two cats and a dog. All right? It, it's got to land here, folks. The grace of the gospel has to land here. Uh, I'm at CCF in Philadelphia. I've been working all day. I've been telling people how to grow, how to change. I've been talking about uh, how uh, the grace of Christ can completely change us and enable us to do things we never would have imagined we could do. And uh, I'm tired. It's about 5 or 6 o'clock, and I'm tired. My, my body is tired. That's part of my situation. I've actually got a headache, right? So physiologically, I've got some, some suffering that's going on here. My body's tired. I've got a headache. I get in my car to drive home, and I just had this fleeting thought. You know what? I am so glad work is over. I cannot wait till I get home to just experience a little rest and relaxation, just a little R&R, &R, just some comfort, some, some, you know, rest from the difficulties and challenges of the day. And immediately, this desire for something in and of itself, fundamentally good, right? Rest and relaxation are not inherently sinful things. We have a commandment, the fourth commandment, that says... Six days you shall labor, on the seventh you shall rest. We have examples of Jesus pulling away from the crowds and resting. There's nothing inherently wrong with comfort. It's a good thing, 
But look what happens. It slowly begins to morph on my drive home in the car, and I begin to worship and adore and treasure comfort to the degree that I can begin to taste it. I can smell it. It becomes that palpable. I can't, I've, and it becomes a demand. And then that demand begins to morph into a need. I've got to have it if life is going to make sense, right? And I have expectations, and other people now need to perform in a certain way in order for me to get my comfort. So already my worship is getting disoriented. You see that? I'm not worshiping the true and living Christ functionally in the moment. I'm really living functionally in the moment for comfort. That's really what I want. And it becomes an expectation. It begins to change the way I think about others around me and what I expect of them. And when they don't deliver, I'm disappointed. And as a result of the disappointment, I punish them. And this is what it looks like for me. I drive home, drive into my driveway, walk in the back door of my house. I have four kids. Two are arguing over the computer. And another two are doing their homework. My wife has been working all day as well. She's tired. And I have two cats that I don't particularly care for. <laughs> right? That's not a good sign. And I have a, a Labrador retriever that I like. But, you know, when she's coming up and jumping on me when I'm walking in the door, it's not exactly what I'm looking for to start the, you know, the re relaxation and comfort that I'm hoping to get. And what I do is I turn into a drill sergeant. So rather than avoiding the situation and just going back into my car and driving back to work, right, or driving down the road, or just coming in and being a pleaser, those are two other options, and I can do those. In this instance, and most time, I want to win. And so out of this desire for comfort, what I do behaviorally, how I respond to the situation is I turn into a drill sergeant and I try to get control of my circumstances. My youngest daughter, Catherine, uh, does this because I do that. She jokes with me. Uh, my dad was a Marine and I know something about military protocol. And so I come in and I just start barking orders. I'm just mildly irritated and agitated. And I go to my two kids who are arguing over the computer and I, I can't believe you guys are arguing over the computer. You need to, you need to stop that. Right? And then uh, I go over to my other two children, and they're, uh, they're struggling with their homework, and I'm helping one, and the other one's interrupting me, and I'm, I'm just like, why are you, I'm, I'm helping your sibling. When I'm, when I'm through helping him, I'll help you. Right? And my wife is just like, oh, no. <laughs> Drill sergeant dad has come home, and it's not a pretty picture. All right? That, that's scene one. That's where I naturally go. When something other than the living, reigning Christ and the Spirit of Christ working in me is changing and reorienting me. Let me give you scene two. And by God's grace, this does happen, but I, I must confess, albeit imperfectly, right? I'm still in process as I grow in grace, just like you are. Here's what it looks like. Scene two, I'm driving, uh, I'm, I'm leaving work, I have a headache, I'm tired, I've been teaching people how to grow in grace all day, and I get in my car, and already I begin to understand that this is a typical place where I struggle. And so I'm immediately in my car, and I'm 
entering into covenant with God. God help me. All right? It's, it's, not, it's not this, you know, eloquent, psalm-like prayer. It's just a simple cry for mercy. Lord, help me. You know, at the end of the day like this, how I can easily default from loving and cherishing you and defaulting and loving and cherishing a temporal pleasure in creation called comfort. I can allow that to become my functional Savior and God and place of refuge in the moment. God, will you help me? So already self-awareness, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I'm understanding the internal dynamic that expresses itself. That right there in and of itself is good stuff because it's a mark that the Spirit of God is working in my life. Self-awareness, if you're connected to Christ, can be a wonderful thing. And so I'm already self-aware. I begin to drive home, and what I need to do is I need to see the grace of Christ. And it's got to become more compelling to me and more attractive to me than comfort. And and this is where I think the Christian life really uh, goes into mock speed. What, what, What I begin to do is I begin to bring truths of Scripture, so there are truths, right? but I I wed it with prayer. When you you bring scripture and prayer together, what are you doing? You're entering into relationship with God. You're not just doing this cognitive kind of mind game in the car. And and a passage that, that begins to resonate with me anyway is a passage like Philippians 2. And if you aren't familiar with Philippians 2, it's a picture of Jesus leaving his place of comfort in in heaven and, and saying, I don't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but I'm going to empty myself. He becomes a human being, and then he suffers, and he dies, and then the passage says he's raised. And there's something compelling about Philippians 2. And as I'm driving home, I begin to do what, what the prophets of old would do in the Old Testament. I begin to mock the false object of worship, which is comfort, Right? And I began to compare. I'd say, comfort, when was the last time you left your place of prominence and comfort and glory and prestige and humbled yourself for me? Comfort, when did you ever suffer for me? When did you ever take on flesh? When did you ever die for my sins? When were you ever raised for my justification? When did you ever do that? And as I'm interacting and praying to God, and, and by the way, I have my, I have my eyes open as I'm driving, just in case you're going to try this on your way home today, keep your eyes open. You know what's happening in my car? Spiritual warfare. Because there is a battle raging in my heart for whom I will love, whom I will cherish. Real spiritual warfare. I love in in James chapter 4, resist the devil. There is this fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Something in creation. Comfort. My own sinful proclivities, I want it to be all about me. And then the work of the evil one who's playing in the midst of it all. And I'm crying out to God for mercy and help. And as I do that, and as I work through Philippians 2, all of a sudden, comfort gets demoted to its rightful place. Christ gets promoted to where he belongs. And I get reoriented vertically. Right? And this is just a 10-minute drive from work to home. 
And, and notice comfort doesn't get thrown off as this sinful, evil thing. Now, there are clearly things that we live for that are clearly sinful, but oftentimes the things that we're living for are good things, things actually that God has given us as blessings that we turn into the blesser. And when we, whenever we do that, we, we have these, what Augustine called these inordinate desires. And, and what the Spirit and the Word and our communion with God is intended to do is to reorient us vertically so that I'm worshiping the true and living Christ functionally. All right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. I walk in the back door of my house. And let me, let me be very frank with you. I do not walk in kind of levitating on some spiritual plane. That's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is a very earthy faith. When I'm worshiping the true and living God, I'm more connected and grounded in reality, not less connected to reality. And I walk in the back door and the same stuff is going on. Two kids arguing over the computer, two kids struggling with their homework, a wife who's tired because she's been working all day, two cats and a dog. But I'm, I'm able to because... I've been changed by the grace of Christ as I'm interacting and talking to him and asking him to help me. I begin to understand other people differently because I've been reoriented vertically. Something is changing horizontally. And, and the people that I'm encountering now aren't people that are in my way that I need to get past or objects that I need to manipulate to get what I want. They become the people that God has called me to love and serve. And I walk in my back door and I have two kids arguing over the computer. Now, I have, I have two children that are being selfish, and I need to deal with that. But it sounds a lot different. I don't come in, you know, barking orders and putting on the military drill. I come in, I may speak to them, I may try to encourage them, and I may decide, you know what? There is a consistent pattern here between these two children, and I need to probably circle back later on tonight and talk to them about it. But I don't have to fix it right now in order to get my life and my universe in, in kilter with my selfish desires. I can be patient. And then I go over to my other child and uh, she has experienced what we call a mean day at school, a mean girl day. And she's fearful and I'm able to encourage her. You look discouraged, what's happening? Well, I love you, I care about you. And maybe I think I'll circle back with her later as well. Now I've got a, another child and he struggles. He has mental frailties when it comes to putting numbers together and, and words and punctuation. And I'm, I'm coming alongside and helping him. That word help in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 literally, mean, literally means put your arm around someone and walk with them. And so as I get reoriented vertically, I come in and I'm, I'm different in the way that I treat people. And I have all kinds of ministry options. There may be an occasion where I need to confront and challenge and express concern, but there's going to be a very different way that that comes across. There may be a, a, an individual who's fearful that needs encouragement or someone who's struggling and they need help. But that is how the work of grace transforms us. Once we get reoriented vertically, then we begin to, to, to think and behave differently as we interact with others horizontally. This is, just as an intro session, a 
basic and simple introduction to a biblical understanding of change. And I, I would argue, and I've, I've worked with many people who have much more complex struggles than trying to go home and love their wife and kids or their husband and kids at the end of the day, worked with people with much more complex sufferings and deep struggles with temptation and sin, and this same dynamic is equally powerful and helpful. And I want you to understand this. This doesn't just become kind of a one-off and I'm changed forever, right? I'm not a triumphalist. I, I understand in my own heart too clearly the pull of remaining sin in my own life. And I know that the battle happens day after day after day. But yet there is progress, there is growth, there is change. And for that, we can be encouraged. Let me uh, just close our time in prayer, and then Steve's going to come up and direct us uh, before our second session. Thank you. Let me pray. Father, we um, thank you for how simple Scripture is, and yet how nuanced and sophisticated it is as it addresses those things that are endemic to the human condition. Uh, minor daily normal struggles with sin and suffering, but also a deep life-dominating sins and, and excruciating suffering. Your word speaks to that entire spectrum. And I would pray that as we gather today, we would see and be uh, re-energized and, and encouraged as we think about how relevant the wisdom of Scripture is for all of life. Uh, would you help us as we continue to grow today in Jesus' name? Amen.